Well, um, I want to um, <clears throat> wish you again happy Palm Sunday. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at three different passages. And uh, what I want to talk about is, um, as you can see from your, from the, your, your uh, outline, uh, the garden, the dungeon, and the wild oxen. Um, now, <clears throat> uh, when we think about Palm Sunday and all the things that happen during Holy Week, I want to focus in on that section of time, which was the, the very last, the last moments of Jesus' life, through three, what I would say are very unusual passages. Now, um, over the past 15 years, um, worst case scenario products have become very popular. And uh, I don't know if you've ever played the game or read the books, but uh, these things have been hugely popular over the past, past 15 years. And I was reading this week about why that's the case. And the reason why, according to the article I read, was that people love to be prepared for all sorts of things, even crazy things. I mean, some of these worst-case scenarios are, what do you do if you're caught in an elephant stampede? Or what do you do if you're on a camel and the camel just starts to, to run, run away from you and you're on the camel, you know, and he's a runaway camel? Now, I, I don't know if the experts who gave the advice on this really know what they're talking about, but the reason why people love this stuff is they want to be prepared for the worst. Here's another guy that I think is kind of interesting. Here's this guy's Clint Emerson. He is uh, an ex-Navy SEAL. And he writes about all these deadly skills that he learned about. And so if you want to know uh, how to do clandestine operations, this, this is all entertainment. It is not serious. Uh, he'll tell you how in this book. And these books are huge bestsellers. Why? People want to be prepared for worst-case scenarios. Same thing with a really unusual seminar you can go to. You go to the seminar, and for three days, they teach you how to survive in the city. And then they, they take you out to a place in a, in a van. They, they put a mask around you, and they gently tase you. They drop you out someplace, and they tell you, get back to your hotel. You've got no money. You've got no resources. Get back to your hotel using what we've trained you to do. These things are hugely popular. Because people want to be prepared for the worst. Well, <clears throat> I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with, with good preparation. Uh, preparedness can, can be a good thing. But what we see in the last days of Jesus is the ultimate preparation for the ultimate worst-case scenario. And the ultimate preparation in terms of what Jesus encountered was the power of prevailing prayer, the power of prevailing prayer. And in the three stories we look at uh, this morning, we're going to see the incredible power of prevailing prayer when the worst case scenario comes to pass. And we start with scene one, which is the Garden of Gethsemane. Scene one, the Garden of, of, of Gethsemane. And as we begin the story, I want, I want you to think about the upper room in Jerusalem because the disciples have been in the upper room. There's an artist's rendition of what the upper room probably looked like as they were celebrating the last Passover and the first 
Lord's Supper. And I have to tell you that the disciples are not feeling any love for each other at this point. Because what Peter has done is he said, I don't care if everybody leaves, I'm going to stay close to you. And as soon as Peter said that, the rest of the disciples probably rolled their eyes in contempt because Peter was often saying things like this, I'm going to one-up all of you guys. So they descend the stairs down to the streets of Jerusalem, and they begin to walk through the city streets to the, valley, the, the Kidron Valley. And there's the Kidron Valley today. It was a lot steeper in Jesus' time. They're walking across the Kidron Valley to the other side to what we know is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, today the Garden of Gethsemane is divided up into three places. There's the garden near the Church of All Nations, there's the private garden, and there's the place where the cave was. They were all one place in the first century. And most likely what somebody did, a wealthy owner of this garden who had the oil press, gave Jesus the keys, and he said, if ever you need to get away, uh, feel free to use my olive grove, my garden, in order to pray. And that night they did that. They went over and they began to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, the, it, was, it was, this is the picture, it shows it to be bright. It was very dark, uh, although it was lit by the full moon. As they enter the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is in tremendous emotional pain. He knows what's about ready to take place. And to eight of his disciples, he says, you guys stay here, likely where the gate was. And then Jesus, Peter, James, and John go, go inside the garden, I don't know, maybe 50 yards or so. And Jesus says to the three, you guys wait and watch here. And then Jesus goes further into the garden and Jesus begins to pray. He says, my, my soul is sorrowful. And if Jesus, the Son of God, is saying his soul is sorrowful, he's going through a tremendous time of pain. So he goes further on in, he falls to the ground, he pours out his, his heart in prayer. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he actually has three seasons of prayer. In, in session one of prayer, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In round two, he's, he's much more intimate. In round two, one version says, Abba, Father. Another version says, my father. I mean, he is encountering intimacy with the God of the universe. In round three, he plays along the same lines, except Luke tells us that he began to sweat. His sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. It doesn't say that he sweat drops of blood. What it says was that his sweat became like drops of blood. You know what it's like when you are sweating profusely. What this says is that Jesus was sweating profusely. And there's a lot of symbolism in this because you remember that God told Adam, Adam, the first human being, God told Adam that you will work by the sweat of your brow. And now we have the last Adam, Jesus Christ, preparing for his greatest work by the sweat of his brow, sweating profusely in preparation for this great work that he's doing on the cross. And I want you to notice that as Jesus is persevering in prayer, remember, three, three seasons of prayer in the garden, 
as he's persevering in prayer, the supernatural power of God kicks in because Luke tells us that an angel comes to minister to Jesus while he prays. What I'm saying is this, persevering prayer invites the power of God. And Jesus encounters this in the garden. Now, transition from, from that to the experience of the disciples. And the disciples' experience is, is very different. At the end of each of Jesus' prayer sessions, he goes back to find that Peter, James, and John have fallen asleep. Um, it, Luke says it was due to grief and sorrow. Clearly, they were not watching. Instead, they're surrendering to their grief. So we, we see two basic attitudes to prayer. On the one hand, you've got the disciples who surrender to their grief, surrender to their pain, and just surrender to their exhaustion. And Jesus, who is realizing the importance of this, and he's pouring his heart out in God, to, to, to his Father, anticipating that the supernatural power of God will kick in. Now, here's something I want you to realize about prayer. Prayer is a discipline, and persevering prayer is a discipline. And the key to prayer in an emergency is learning how to pray when it's not an emergency. If you are, are waiting to, till an emergency, I'll persevere in prayer, but it's got to be in an emergency, you won't have the resources in the emergency that you could have had if you learn how to persevere in prayer when there's not an emergency. And I'll go back to what I always say, gratitude is the foundation of prayer. That's the foundation of prayer. And gratitude is easy. It's an easy way to begin the discipline of persevering prayer. After about an hour, the disciples hear a commotion down in the Kidron Valley, and there is a bunch of, of thugs who have marched down the Kidron Valley, up the other side. They're marching now toward the Garden of Gethsemane, and on closer inspection, they see officers, uh, they see some of the priests, officers of the priests, they see some soldiers, and to their amazement, there's one of their own, Judas Iscariot, right there with the rest of the thugs. So there's the disciples, and there's the thugs. And I can just imagine that there's a standoff, and for... Just brief moments, they glare at each other. And then Jesus does the amazing. With a deep voice, with a powerful, resonant voice, Jesus speaks. Whom do you seek? The reply is Jesus the Nazarene. And when they said Nazarene, you better believe they spit out that word with contempt and hatred because Nazareth was not a cool place. Jesus answers with supernatural power laced with a tremendous sense of humor. I say that because Jesus simply says, I am. And with that, as if there was an invisible force field, all the thugs fall backward to the ground. If you, if you were there, it would look like a Peter Jackson movie. It would look like uh, uh, The Return of the King, you know, of the, of the Lord of the Rings. They all just fall to the ground as if hit by an invisible force field. 
the power of I am thrusts them back. Now, why do I say there's a bit of humor in there? There's a, a bit of humor in there because these men who thought they were so powerful, so awesome, so capable, are falling back on the ground. And they can't get up. They can't get up. Um, as they're trying to figure out what happened, he says, uh, whom do you seek again? Whom do you seek? No answer. So he says it again. I told you that I am. So let these people go. Now he's withdrawing that power so that they're able to use their free will again to do the horrible. And then with titanic hypocrisy, Judas comes forward and he kisses Jesus on the cheek. That's the trigger. And they rush toward Jesus and they arrest him. Peter, however, is not going down without a fight. What we discover is that Peter has concealed a weapon in his robes. He's concealed a short sword. He's concealed a sharp object. And he whips it out of his robe like this, lifts it up in the air, intending to harm the high priest's slave. Peter is not a swordsman. He's a fisherman. And he's not very good with his sword. Intending to, to split the high priest's head from his neck, the high priest swerves out of the way and his ear gets lopped off. Jesus bends down, picks up the ear, puts the ear back on. No problem, no problem. Easy to do. Done it before. No problem. You see, there's power with a, with a sense of, of holy humor. Jesus displaying his supernatural power in the midst of these, these really, truly impotent people who think they have power but don't really have it. So far, Jesus' disciples have done the reverse of what Jesus did. Peter depended upon human power, the power of the sword. Judas depended upon human power, the power of political connection and financial reward, and the rest just passively surrendered to the circumstances. And the reason why was because they were not experienced in persevering prayer. You remember that Jesus said to him in the upper room, pray that you may not enter into temptation. They didn't pray, they entered into temptation, and they succumbed. When you combine the four accounts of the story, um, one huge idea comes through, and it's this. Power to endure the hardest moments of your life comes through persevering prayer. Power to endure the hardest moments in life come through the discipline of prevailing prayer. The disciples failed to pray. They succumbed. Jesus prayed. Jesus encountered the power. Now, let me just briefly tell you that when I say it's a discipline, what I, what I mean is that you're working with your body because habits reside in the body. Remember, Jesus said, the spirit is willing, you guys. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Why was their flesh weak? Habits reside in the body. So their spirit wanted to prevail in prayer. It was an emergency. It, the spirit wanted to do that, but they couldn't pull it off because the habits of the body were so strong. The cool thing about prevailing prayer is that if you learn how to do prevailing prayer 
in the good times, you know how to do it in the bad times. Do we prevail in prayer in the good times, usually? No, because we don't need to, we think. And that's why prayer in the good times is so important to prepare you for the inevitable trials that come your way and then when the bad times come. That's scene one. Scene one is the garden. Now, Jesus' perseverance is not over yet, and things now go from bad to, to worse, and they're a lot worse. And that leads us to scene two. And scene two is the dungeon. It's the dungeon in Caiaphas's home. Here's the passage. The band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. That took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. First, they led him to Annas. Uh, he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, but Caiaphas was the high priest that year. So he goes from Annas' home now to Caiaphas' home. And that's where we find something really very strange. When we came to Israel both in, uh, in 2014 and 2016, we visited the site of Caiaphas' house. And um, you actually see those steps are the original steps that lead you up to that house. I mean, it's kind of cool to be in, in Israel and see the original steps of some place, and they're pretty sure those are the original steps. You can't walk on those steps today um, because they're, they're, they're blocked off. But Caiaphas was a Sadducee, and he only believed in one thing, political power in the present because there was no resurrection. That's what he believed. And uh, what blew me away about this house was that there was a series of prisons in his basement. Does that seem weird to you? Spiritual leader, prisons in his basement. Imagine you came to our house and uh, you came down to our basement and you said, what are those rooms? And I said, oh, ha, those are our prison cells. We have these for disobedient church members. You, you would say, that is beyond weird. And you would run out of our house and away from the church as soon as you could. That's weird. And Caiaphas had a series of prison cells. And we don't have a basement in our house, so don't, don't, don't worry about that. Uh, he had a series of prison cells down there for disobedient people whom he could arrest and imprison. But worse than that, he had a pit and uh, the pit today has a series of stairs that will take you down there. Back then, it didn't have the stairs. There was an opening in the ceiling, and they let you down into the pit. Well, tradition says that when Jesus was, was in Caiaphas' house, at least for a time, he was lowered down into that pit. Now, you see it being very bright there, and uh, it was not, not bright. It was, it was dark, and it was, it was black. And the assumption is that Jesus spent some time in that pit. And the assumption further is when he was down there, Jesus, who knew the word of God very well, would meditate on Psalm 88. Again, all this is speculation, but a, a lot of people have, have, have assumed this is what took place. So let, let's assume that it did took, take place. Here's Jesus praying prophetically, O Yahweh, God of my salvation. Now, if this is the case, he just said, I am, which is from what the word Yahweh comes from in Hebrew. 
I cry out by day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Um, Psalm 88 is the saddest psalm of the Bible. Every other psalm has a note of encouragement, a note of, of victory, not this psalm. It's the only psalm that doesn't. If this is Jesus, he might say, my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down into the pit. And there he was, presumably in the pit in the house of Caiaphas. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead. There he is in the pit. It's, it's, it would feel like a grave to somebody in the first century. Like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions of the dark and the deep. Notice that Jesus saying, is saying, God has done this. God has. His Abba Father has done this. Jesus is in the process now of beginning the payment for sin. And God the Father is removing the sense of his presence as he prepares to go to the cross. And then he says, you've caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. What did all of his companions just do? They just bolted. They just scattered and left Jesus after he was, he was arrested. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. I know Peter is in the courtyard of the high priest, not too far away from where Jesus is imprisoned in the pit. And yet when Jesus gets out of prison and he sees Peter, Peter is in the very process of denying him for the third time. That's when Peter bursts into tears. What about you? I mean, what is it like to be in the dungeon? In Gethsemane moments, things might be bad, but at least your friends are around. In Gethsemane moments, you might pray and encounter the power of God, like Jesus did. But what, what about the dungeon moment for you? The dungeon moment is that time when God seems very, very far away, like he would have seemed to Jesus at this point. At times in your life, you're going to experience God's hiddenness. God's hiddenness. And people just are crushed by the hiddenness of God. So let, let, me, let me give you a simple theology of hiddenness. Hiddenness happens. It happens. In your Christian walk, 100% of all believers in Christ will encounter at some point the hiddenness of God. Um, when you think about the hiddenness of God, it's that time when God seems very distant, very far away. You can't feel him. You can't sense him. You don't sense his love. You sense his farness, and you wrestle over that, and you wonder, God, why are you not here? I'm crying out to you. Hiddenness happens. A second part of the theology of hiddenness is paradoxical. Hiddenness is a gift. It is a gift. Do not despise the hiddenness of God. It's often a gift. I say that because if God was constantly intruding into your life like an email spammer or like a telemarketer, if God was continually intruding into your life, 
like a micromanaging boss, what would that do, to, do, do for you? You'd go, give me some space. Don't keep on bugging me like this. I don't want you right now. I want my space. You know, one of the things that's interesting about little kids is that, you know, for a while, they don't want any space. They want mom or dad. But you know, when a little two-year-old says, Mommy, I want my space, you think, okay, we pass into a new season. And sometimes as followers of Jesus, if God were always showing up, like the email marketer, like the spammer, like, like the micromanager, we would say, God, just, just give me some space. So one of the things God does is he allows periodic hiddenness to come into to, to our life for the purpose of allowing us to assess our desire. Let, let, me, let me introduce you to, to, to a word, and the word is called unforced desire. Unforced. You know, what, you know what forced desire is? Forced desire is going into a store and somebody is, is making you buy something you don't yet want to buy. That's forced kind of awakening that desire in you by force. Unforced desire is what you feel for your dog. You know, you, you love your dog. You love your dog. Nobody's making you love your dog. You love your dog. It's unforced desire. What God does in times of hiddenness is he makes you, he makes you assess, what is my level of unforced desire? And he does that so that you will, it will evoke genuine desire for the God of the universe. Some of you right now are thinking, my unforced desire is pretty low. And some of you are saying, my unforced desire is really high. It's really high. And you're saying, God, I want you, I want you, I want you, I want you. Hiddenness helps you understand unforced desire. And when unforced desire becomes dominant in your life, you fall back in love with God. And I would say don't despise times when God seems hidden. It is part of the process of learning to encounter his love. Scene one, the garden. Scene two, the dungeon. Scene three, the horns of the wild oxen. That, um, that wording uh, comes from Psalm 22, verse 21. So let me explain. Jesus makes seven last statements on the cross. Those are the seven. I won't read them all. But the middle statement is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the middle statement. That middle statement is both very disturbing and it's very encouraging. In fact, um, this is the most poignant of all of the statements because it's the only one that the gospel writers want to convey in the Aramaic language. Jesus spoke Aramaic in the common language of the day. And this is rendered in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's how poignant it was. It had to be delivered in the original Aramaic. So it's an amazing statement. Here's the Son of God dying in our place on the cross. Middle statement of, of the seven statements is, why, why, have you, why have you forsaken me? Well, 
What's going on in that statement? Well, really, what Jesus is doing is he's making a cry in the moment, but he's also saying to the people around him, I am fulfilling Psalm 22, the entire psalm. The entire psalm applies to me. And any thoughtful person at the foot of the cross would have heard him say that and go, Psalm 22, I know it well. I've memorized that because everybody memorized Psalm 22 back then. I've memorized it. This is, this is the fulfillment of this. An insightful person may have understood that. This cry of despair is a cry of trust. It's a cry of trust. Let me, let's get a feel for the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Psalm 22, verse 7, all who seek me mock me. He's describing what was happening at the foot of the cross, where everybody is wagging their head and cursing him and, and railing against, against who he is. Think of the symbolism of the cross. He's rejected by God above. He's rejected by humanity below. He's hanging in midair, the literal reject of heaven and earth. Indescribably painful. The people whom he created are railing against him. The God to whom he was related in his essence is withdrawing the sense of his presence from him. Horrible, indescribable pain that he's, that he's going through. As Jesus looks down <clears throat> from the cross, he describes to God what the pain, the pain he is encountering, from the mocking now to the evil, for dogs have encompassed me. Now, don't think about, about these dogs like our dogs, whom we name sweet, sweet names like Baxter and Molly and Buster and Maggie. We're not talking about those kind of dogs. We're talking about dogs of the ancient world, dogs that were scavenger dogs, dogs that would rip into flesh. That's what he's talking about. They're like ravenous dogs tearing at my flesh. They pierced my hands and my feet. The people who were crucifying Jesus were acting like scavenger dogs of the ancient world. Jesus continues, I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. From my clothing, they cast lots. What was amazing about clothing in the ancient world is there were no Dillard's, Nordstrom's, or Gap's in the ancient world, nothing like that. No Banana Republic, no J. Crew. So if you got a piece of clothing, it was a one-of-a-kind piece of clothing, sometimes worth as much as six months to a year's salary. This is a very valuable piece of clothing laying on the ground, and the soldiers, insensitive to what's going on on the cross, take out the ancient equivalent of dice, and they throw the dice, saying, okay, who's going to get this piece of clothing? Because it's very valuable, completely insensitive to what was going on, insensitive to Jesus' pain. Jesus continues to pray, Lord, do not be far off. Um, oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Do you hear the piercing images in that. You see how there's piercing images, the piercing point of the sword, the piercing point of the dog's teeth, the piercing point of the lion's mouth. 
These are piercing words. He's being pierced literally with nails and with spears and with, and with, with pain, with pain. The lion's teeth are the sharpest. He's going from, from the least bad to the most bad. Not only, they're not like dogs now. There's like a lion ready to tear him apart. And then the next verse is utterly shocking. It simply says this. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell you that in the ancient world, the wild oxen was thought to be worse than the lion. Um, even, even today, people say that you know, you, if you come upon a water buffalo, that's, that's maybe a bit worse than coming upon a lion. Water buffaloes are the most dangerous of all of those animals. But notice how he states it. He says, you have rescued me. Has that happened yet? No. But it's going to. It's going to. Let me, let me just help you get a feel for this. Imagine that you've, you've gone on a safari. This is a wonderful safari. It's a photo safari. You're taking pictures of all the nice animals, and it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's awesome. It's fantastic. And the bus breaks down, and there's smoke in the bus. You've got to get out of the bus. You're on, you're on the ground, and, and then you see coming toward you a charging water buffalo. He's coming toward you. He's galloping at full speed. He lowers his head. It, it all happens as if in slow motion. This massively long horn is inches away from you. You think, I'm, I'm done. This is over. I'm history. And all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, a lion comes and tackles the water buffalo. And they begin to fight. And you're saved. It's astonishing. It's a radical turnaround. And what Jesus is saying is, Father, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. If the lesson of the garden is gaining power through persevering prayer, and the lesson of the dungeon is longing for God even in hiddenness, the lesson of the wild oxen is this. As you go through pain, thank him in advance for how he's going to work it out. Thank him in advance for how he's going to work it out. I said this last week. You remember my, my acrostic last week was anticipate the surprise solution. A-T-S-S, anticipate the surprise solution. Jesus does that right here on the cross, anticipating prophetically in Psalm 22, the surprise solution. You have rescued me from the horns. Right as I was about to be gored, you rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Jesus goes on and he, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Jesus did that as, at, at his resurrection. Remember, the disciples were locked in the upper room. Jesus shows up miraculously. He tells of the name of the Father to the disciples who were gathered in the upper room. And that leads us to scene four, which is your heart. I just want to ask you, what, 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 is, you know, what is the state of, of, your, of your heart? Because your Gethsemane experience is encountering hard things, and God says to you, you got to go through these. 
You have to go through it. Lord, please let it pass. And the Father in his love says, you have to go through it. I will give you my supernatural power. You have to go through it. Your dungeon experience is encountering God's silence, and paradoxically, you find yourself saying, God, I, I want you all the more. I don't care if you're hidden. I don't care if I don't feel you. I want you all the more. That's the dungeon moment. And then your horns of the wild oxen experience is encountering dire circumstances, and you have the courage, you have the fortitude, you have the bravery to praise him in advance for what you know he can do and for what, for what he will do. Now, here, here's, here's the cool thing. The answer in each of these three cases, in each of these three cases, was living in a warm, interactive, prayerful relationship with the lover of your soul, no matter how much pain you're in. That's the answer in all three of those cases. Warm, interactive, loving relationship, no matter how much pain you're in. What I find amazing is that Jesus experiences the love of the Father. He says, Abba, Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, in the Psalm, he says, you took me from my mother's womb. Yeah, Lord, you, you've been with me all this time. Um, he knows the supernatural ministry of the angels who came and comforted him. Interactive prayer with God reinforces our memory of his supernatural involvement with us in the past. Here's the really amazing thing. Because of Jesus' crucifixion, because of his resurrection, he now comes to us in his supernatural power, and he will minister his power to us. Listen to what he says in Matthew 8.16. People are coming to Jesus to be healed, and he says, it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses, and he bore our diseases. What is he saying there? What he's saying there is if you are in a place of pain, the risen Christ will come to you and meet you in the midst of your pain, and he will provide a solution. Part of the results of the cross is that he will cause his kingdom power to sometimes break through in ways that result in dramatic answered prayer. So again, I, I just kind of want to ask where you are this morning. Are you in a Gethsemane experience? Are you in a dungeon experience? Are you at the horns of the wild oxen experience? We're going to turn the lights low now for a second. And um, I want you to spend just some time in silence before the Lord assessing what place are you in right now of the three. And then you respond to him on the basis of what we've heard this morning. Let's close our eyes and, and just spend a few moments doing that, and then I'll close us in prayer. Father in heaven, I want to pray for those who are, who are in the Garden of Gethsemane moment, and they're going through hard things. And Lord, I pray that you would show up with supernatural power to encourage them, to comfort them, and to give them courage. Father, I pray for those who are in that dungeon experience where they're encountering hiddenness from you and just don't know where to go with the feelings and the emotions, and they're crushed by the hiddenness. Lord, I pray that you would 
give them a new category for hiddenness being a sign of love. Hiddenness giving us the space to assess our love. Encourage them, Father, with love, even in that time of hiddenness. And Lord, for those who are um, in dire circumstances, Lord, I pray uh, that they could praise you in advance for your solution. Father, as we, uh, as we face this Easter week, we ask, Lord, that we might live in that warm, interactive relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.